Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks so much for joining this next episode of In the Nick of Time today with Mike joining us to talk about uh, how to shift cyber left and ITS code is going to be very interesting. A lot of people struggling still with uh, uh, the, the cyber side of the house and how do we uh, uh, make sure that the cyber security is embedded inside of the DevSecOps teams. A lot of people still think of cyber as uh, different uh, teams uh, from the development side of the house. And so that's uh, a very interesting uh, uh, kind of uh, subject today. Uh, also, of course, I uh, wanted to remind everybody that uh, if you have not yet subscribed to uh, the show on the Nick of TV, you're going to be able to find uh, the mailing list uh, so you can get emails for uh, uh, the announcement of the next videos. The next video this week will be about Zero Trust. I, I think you're going to like it. It's a really deep dive on, on Zero Trust and what Zero Trust really is and what it is not. And uh, giving you a couple of examples of how we deployed uh, the largest implementation of Zero Trust in uh, DoD and in the US government with the Cloud Native Access Point. In fact, I just released uh, uh, today a, a pretty uh, significant <coughs> post on the, the situation that's going on with DISA and Zero Trust. So if you missed uh, the post, you should uh, probably go check it out. I think you're going you're gonna to like this. Uh, unfortunately, this uh, refused to reuse the Cloud Native Access Point work we've done at the Air Force and Space Force and Platform One and created the, uh, their own uh, stack from scratch and uh, awarded a contract to Booz Allen and, and really... Uh, it seems it's not go going very well. Uh, and so I think that's uh, that's really where we need to stand up and act uh, as a team to uh, to make sure that uh, the government is is uh, starting to uh, to stop wasting taxpayer money. Um, that's getting very concerning, knowing that, uh, of course, China is not waiting for us to figure this out. And in the meantime, stealing IP and uh, access to uh, to data uh, across the government. Uh, because we can't figure this out. So uh, a very critical uh, piece of capability with Zero Trust. So uh, make sure you you check the post and react to that. And uh, maybe I think it's time to get Congress involved as well. So um, I'm going to be reaching out to uh, to testify on this matter as well. Uh, we also launched a new website. <clears throat> we uh, we just wanted to uh, uh, give you the, the link. Uh, it's uh, in the nick of time, uh, the US, uh, like United States. If you've not uh, seen it yet, uh, please let us know. It's not uh, the final version yet, but it's it's getting there. Um, so please uh, uh, check that out and tell us a little bit what you think about this website uh, here in the nick of time .us. Uh, Also, uh, if you've not subscribed to the YouTube channel yet, uh, do that on uh, youtube.com slash Nicolas Chillon. Uh, thanks for the first... Uh, uh, 1.15 thousand uh, subscribers. Pretty exciting. Uh, we beat the target of uh, of a thousand uh, like we wanted. So I uh, wanted to thank you for that. Uh, like I said, next video on Zero Trust coming uh, this week. And then, of course, uh, uh, the next episode of Fitness of Time will have uh, Pradash, the uh, Chief uh, Information Security Officer of Cloud Bees. Uh, will be joining us as a next guest Tuesday at 1 p.m. So uh, that's going to be a fun discussion, too, uh, with Jenkins and all the stuff that's going on. Jenkins being now uh, 11 years old, has also a lot of tech debt, and, and how are they reinventing themselves and how are they innovating in a world where uh, no one is waiting for them to figure it out. Uh, so that's going to be an interesting discussion uh, next week with our next guest as well. 
today, like I said, uh, and oh, if you missed that, that video uh, of the uh, Valley of Death that we published last week, uh, please check it out. Uh, pretty exciting to see a lot of uh, comment and feedback on uh, the two ideas we're pushing on uh, pushing DevSecOps from day one uh, to those uh, R&D teams and also uh, becoming small, small money by having government-dedicated transition managers uh, to be responsible for being the matchmaker between the programs and the um, sabers uh, so, so teams can find proper customers to grow and scale and um, get uh, the right kind of feedback to build better capabilities and not doing it in a vacuum. Uh, and of course, the government uh, streamlining and facilitating the uh, access to some of these uh, uh, program managers as well. So if you missed that, go check it out on the YouTube channel. Uh, love to get your feedback also on the on the SpaceX versus F-35 video here. We can bring it up on the bring you up on the screen if you if you want to share uh, kind of what your thoughts were after you watch those videos and what we could improve. Always trying to do better. You know, this is not my uh, my background doing uh, videos, but uh, I think uh, we're getting there slowly but surely. All right. Special guest today before I bring him up on the screen. Uh, Mike uh, is uh, is a VP of DevSecOps at uh, Sophos, and he, he, he had a, a startup uh, called the Refactor uh, that was acquired by Sophos in uh, August uh, 2021. He was the uh, co-founder and CEO and chief architect of that company. Uh, of course, he started uh, his career at the Air Force uh, and uh, working on F-15 fighter jets um, and uh, later as a cyber engineer. Uh, he was active duty as well, and uh, he created his first company back when he was uh, 19, uh, which was uh, a retail a retail computer repair store. And uh, since then, he has uh, founded multiple companies and he's a speaker at multiple events and, of course, published uh, great articles. If you Google uh, his name, you're going to find a lot of these uh, great uh, publications. And, of course, uh, he wants to be uh, the world's coolest dad uh, for his six-year-old autistic daughter. Uh, and his spare time is uh, creating... Uh, augmented reality applications, uh, which uh, drastically can help uh, autistic children, and and that's so so great uh, for me to uh, to have the chance to have uh, uh, Mike on the show. So let me bring him up uh, now. Here we go. Uh, welcome, Mike. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. <clears throat> so we uh, I gave a, a, a poor background of of what you've done. You've done so much uh, in the last uh, many years since you, you started uh, uh, after your, your first uh, uh, company when you were 19. You were not 15 like me, so I still win, but that's okay. <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, you know, still you, impressive. Yeah, you, you win that, but well, we were both still teenagers, so uh, yeah. Yeah, still that, the same that counts. Full right? of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. A lot, of, a lot of parents will be pretty happy if they, they hear their kids. Uh, tell them that they they were gonna succeed this way. So, uh, so the first question we always have when we have guests on the show is uh, for them to tell us a little bit about uh, your journey. So we'll let you do that. Yeah, thanks. So as you had stated, I started out my career in the Air Force, active duty, and then I decided that I wanted to uh, start my own company. I had the entrepreneurial spirit at uh, eighteen, nineteen. Started my first company, which is a computer repair shop a few miles off of base, and then uh, transitioned to the Air National Guard as a cybersecurity engineer and worked and had multiple companies 
uh, different companies from uh, managed services provider company to uh, cloud and cybersecurity consulting firms. Um, built a workspace as a service product uh, a few years back. Uh, didn't time it uh, well with the market. If it was uh, right before pandemic, it would have been perfect, um, but was able to pivot to uh, building out Refactor, which is uh, the DevSecOps automation platform that, as you mentioned, was acquired by Sophos last year when where I'm now VP of DevSecOps. So super excited about the stuff I'm doing at Sophos. And, uh, you know, I've had a very interesting uh, career going from fighting on, I like to say, physical weapon systems uh, uh, on F-15s that I worked on to uh, digital weapon systems around different systems as a cybersecurity engineer and then coming over to the other side of the world, the developer world, and getting my uh, bachelor's and master's in computer science. So it's uh, uh, been an interesting journey, but I'm one of those people that has to know or try to know as much as I possibly can. So if I'm going to build something, uh, I am the subject matter expert of what uh, I'm building and, and um, wanting to make sure that I'm taking in uh, feedback from various folks across the full spectrum of technical talent, which is really what we're trying to achieve with uh, DevSecOps in general. And um, super excited about obviously what the DOD is doing with DevSecOps that you started, but also um, what we're doing in the commercial world as well. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And so funny enough, you, you kind of coined the term ITS code. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I, I always, um, want to know more about where that came from and, and what is it exactly? Yeah. So I, when I, when I was getting into, um, the developer side of the house and working in different DevOps tools and, you know, kind of in the DevOps life cycle of, uh, automation, I really wanted to see the rest, everything outside of pure play app dev also included into this process and really truly try to achieve what DevSecOps is. So IT is code is really, as you like to also say, everything is code where if you're getting your infrastructure, your configuration, any of the security, and then uh, complementary things like integrations all become code, you should be able to find, follow the same agile principles as you would in DevOps. It's not just necessarily applicable to uh, cloud native, but really should be looked at holistically. If it's code, you know, or if it's software, software defined, it should fit into the same process that we've been doing for 10 plus years in DevOps and for 20 plus years in agile software delivery. And so IT as code is just this thought process behind, you know, the shift to from, you know, data centers and rack and stack hardware to software defined software and software defined everything. And if we're going to do that, the only way we're going to be able to modernize is to be able to think about IT and the full life cycle of IT as code. And that's where that term came from. So I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that shift, but it's also a very difficult type of paradigm that you're having to look at as you're going from kind of point solutions now trying to think about everything holistically and, and heterogeneous and wanting to make sure that you can support both traditional and more of the legacy IT systems, and then obviously the more modern cloud native stuff that's out there too. So you have to think about everything because if we just shift fully to you know all the stuff that DevSecOps wants us to realize is more of the modern stuff, we want to look at also how we can decouple some of that automation we can create and apply that to other more traditional IT systems in place because you know everything lags 
um, you know, not just in the commercial world, but as you know, in the, on the government side too, many years behind anything we're trying to modernize on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you, you talked about a lot of key concepts, right, to enable scaling across <clears throat> large organizations. You look at uh, GitOps and the infrastructure as code, configuration as code. If you talk to companies, everybody claims they're doing it, right? Yet they have uh, built products that have uh, fancy dashboards that uh, enable you to make changes in production without making code changes first and, and pushing back, back into Git. So you have all these fancy cyber tools, particularly, and also management tools, right, that are uh, enabling you to to connect to some fancy UI, and and then you can uh, uh, make changes. And and unfortunately, still to this day, most of these products are pushing those changes directly in uh, production. Uh, you know, bypassing any kind of uh, uh, change management enforcement through multiple set of eyes on Git, and kind of drifting your desired state from Git, effectively making sure that you're not uh doing GitOps. and so so that's a massive struggle particularly for cyber teams that are used to either uh connecting to ssh and updating uh, and patching uh, uh some packages or some dependency or whatnot and also uh teams that are using all these uh fancy uh allegedly facilitator tools that uh, enable you to connect and have a, a fancy ui to to make decisions and make changes in production, but uh, most of these tools are not pushing those changes back to Git. Um, so that's uh, that's a big challenge, right? It is, and I, I so specifically when you talk about cybersecurity and where cyber's been for the last you know ten plus years, you know if you if you if you look at a cyber team and say, hey, here's here's a Git repo, I want you to aspire to this particular process leveraging CI/CD. Um, the, a lot of cyber folks' eyes are going to glaze over because it's not what they've been traditionally supporting. To your point, they live in nice UIs and in GUIs, and so the shift to modernizing to, I like to call it, you know, as I said earlier, IT as code and thinking about DevSecOps. We really have to think about how do we get cybersecurity started to be a part of it, and it's not just about visibility. There's so many products out there that provide visibility. But the reality is we need cybersecurity to be a part of the process and it has to be collaborative. And we also have to think about how we can provide technology to them at where they're at. And so the upskilling piece of all of this is super important, but you can't just say, hey, here's some Git repos, here's a CI CD system, figure it out. We have to figure out more, more sophisticated ways to be able to provide technology to them that's at where they're at uh, from a, a skill standpoint. And then also thinking about how we get DevOps and developers involved to be able to work with them and, as I say, collaborate so that we can help them to be a part of this. Because a lot of the push around different tools and technologies, to your point, is they're, they're nice dashboards. They provide visibility. They're point solutions, though. They, can, they themselves can make changes. And we want to look at this as, again, something holistic where you have different teams in collaborating. I don't think it's a shift to pure play. DevSecOps teams, because I think that trying to add another domain to DevOps engineers is a very difficult proposition, you know, or developers. I think we have to think about how each team can take responsibility for what they're uh, creating and thinking about automation and building, you know, pipelines is building them like software. And if we have folks involved to do that, then we can think about this in a way that we protect and deploy software to your point around using Git and using GitOps, thinking about 
different methodologies and approaches to how we can have all these different teams cohesively working together. But that requires technology that can meet each of the teams where they're at uh, in the full spectrum of technical talent. Yeah, and you know, you, you mentioned obviously teams using uh, fancy UIs, and then of course you have the other side of the the house in cyber teams mostly doing CLI, right? <clears throat> and so, um, you know, many of these teams know all the command lines and all the uh, the nooks and creeks of, of Linux and so on, right? But now they would have to to move to a GitOps universe, and they have never uh, probably committed code into Git uh, at all, if 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 any. But maybe some, who knows? But uh, most people probably have not, right? And so, um, completely different landscape. Also, having to now understand the, the source code side of the house and understand uh, what changes they would have to make in Git. Uh, let's say you need to update a dependency uh, version while well, you have to go into uh, uh, maybe a Docker file or some YAML or, or, or some code to go and, and uh, make that change. Some uh, tools, right? You talked about the fancy UIs facilitate that change by, uh, by obfuscating it through UI and, and you just effectively click a button. Uh, that would be pretty easy uh, for these tools to stop, uh, you know, pushing the changes straight uh, to production, but instead uh, mapping the change to Git repos and then do a merge request. And then that merge request will be approved in Git by the, the team, right? So uh, that would flow back to a normal GitOps process and the UI will still facilitate kind of the adoption of and understanding of, of the, the Git Git. Uh, interaction, but but it will be very streamlined uh, by by uh, uh, some some uh, some UI. But uh, the the training portion of all this, right? You talked about the, the complexity of of training. Uh, I've yet to see really anyone uh, starting to bring so, any type of of training when it comes to cyber teams on the the concept of GitOps. Yeah, so I think we need to take a step back from even GitOps. So if we so kind of to your point, if cybersecurity practitioners and engineers are living command lines, building scripts. I think we need to shift the definition of what a developer is first so we can start thinking about a broad, you know, broadening out the term of developer. And I, I hate using like the term citizen developer because it does take a certain type of person even to build scripts that work, right? But then being able to build and encapsulate those into a consumable format and then tie that into, say, a, a GitOps process. But I think we have to start earlier in how we position technology to these to this type of uh, user, so they can be a part of it. And then the other piece of it is the tools, right? So you have you have your th you have your your third-party commercial tools, you have your open-source tools, and so we have to think about how to also balance open-source versus commercial tools and where they make the most sense, and then how the cyber teams are supporting them, and then how those tie into the existing workflows that organizations have. And I think that's the key to all of this is being able to have them be a part of it, but also make sure that we're not trying to unseat technologies that are already in place, like, you know, the next guest you have next week, like Jenkins or, uh, you know, or CloudBees or, or GitLab or GitHub, and think about how thing, you know, technologies can be tied in so that they can be a part of this, and then look at how these can tie into more of the, to your point, the GitOps workflow. But I, I think that that's like so far beyond what we're talking about in cyber that we have to like figure out how we start with them first. And I'll say like, I made a decision when I was building um, Refactor where 
we supported Git, but we also wanted to support the ability just to pop in your scripts right there in the UI. So you could start using and start building around how you would build pipelines. And I think that that's critical because you want folks to start kind of upskilling themselves by learning. Because if you think about this, DevSecOps requires some computer science fundamental skills. And you have to think about those skills and how they'd apply to how cyber would use them, but then also be able to support what the DevOps and developers have been doing for 10 plus years. And so how do you meet them together and bridge that gap um, to be able to have both of them working cohesively together in the tools that they use and love on a day-to-day -day basis and not disrupt either side of that, uh, either side of, of that um, spectrum of, of that type of talent. Yeah, no doubt. So that's a kind of a step-by-step -step concept, right? Because you, you see, of course, um, you know, when you look at training, right, I was trying to find uh, the right kind of training to send to some cyber people reaching out to me asking for help to understand, you know, infrastructure as good configuration as good and GitOps. <clears throat> a lot of the stuff is designed for developers, honestly. I don't think all the content is actually designed for cyber guys. There is one certification, right? Uh, the, the, the certified Kubernetes security specialist CKS, but that's really uh, deep into Kubernetes and, and pretty complex, pretty the, the hardest uh, that I know in, in, in kind of cyber related things. So most people couldn't just start there and, and get a certificate certification done uh, first. So they would have to start with some baby steps. So I guess, I, I, you know, I understand your, your notion of, hey, you want to you want to start bringing also the ability for these teams to get used to those concepts so they can get to the to the more advanced, more mature piece, right? But you know, when you look at DevSecOps, right, how does all of this map to it, right? Because you have all these phases, all these, you know, people talk about shift left, both for testing and and you know uh, uh, for for the duty. Of course, we have all the uh, operational testing communities and all these different teams that often are uh, doing assessment at the end of the the food chain. How does this um, ITS code and the whole concept of, of everything we just talked about map back to, to DevSecOps? So that's a great question. So I think there's a map left and then there's a map right. So we have to think about both sides of that equation because it's not just about shifting cybersecurity left, but it's also how do we get the ops folks to consume what the DevOps and security folks create or even be a part of the equation too. Um, or part of the process. And in, in DevSecOps, I, I look at DevSecOps as, you know, holistically enabling collaboration across, you know, Dev, DevOps and ops or security and ops teams. And then thinking about how you can introduce agile um, automation into these teams and have them all be a part of the process and take responsibility over what they're working on and creating. And so, if you can enable them through technology, which is what I was doing uh, with Refactor now, now Sophos Factory, um, to be able to support both sides. So I, I know you've talked about like uh, low code on another um, uh, uh, another talk, and I think we have to think about both, you know, more of the high code or the, the coding side, and then the low code side. Both sides have to be supported. I see low code kind of falling on its face if all you're doing is abstracting away everything for the user and then the developers the devops engineers don't want to even touch it because of the fact that it, it abstracts so much away and so i feel i feel like we have to delicately balance between both sides there in order to map this whole it is code um to devsecops and think about this as 
these different teams working together and building modern solutions that are driving outcomes for the organization through the technologies that they're trying to tie together and then future proofing also as well because you know the push towards cloud native and kubernetes may be here today but we're also looking at what are the next technologies that we need to support too and so we really have to think about how we can future proof this for teams as they're building and iterating on the more modern DevSecOps solutions that they're creating. Yeah, no, that's that's spot on, right? It's uh, it's it's a problem that's been going on for years now, right? And so when you when you look at uh, uh, technologies coming out, right, and and God knows uh, I have a lot of startups and companies reaching out to me every week to show me new cool concepts, often uh, thinking they're the first one to think about something when when they're not, right? And so when you look at all the cyber technologies that you've seen uh, on the la you know, the, during the last uh, years, what kind of cyber technologies help you kind of streamline that, that, that whole model? Like, is there tools that come to mind that, that say, hey, you know, this is, this is actually a game-changing capability to help the shift? I think so. I think if we first look at the existing tools out there, I talk with a lot of different cybersecurity vendors. And I think if you see a lot of the vendors that have been around for you know, 10, 15, 20 years, they're slowly trying to catch up with this push towards DevSecOps and IT as code. And so they're trying to figure out, do I make these acquisitions? Do I create net new technology in my organization that can help support this? And so I, I look at the different technologies and put them into different buckets for use cases, and then think about how those use cases can be building blocks around the different solutions that I'm trying to create. So if we take like IAM, for instance, and look at you know different products in IAM, I wanna, any of those technologies, I wanna be able, kind of your point earlier, be able to support them from a, a CLI, um, or is there an API I can tie into, put it into more of the programmatic type of pipelining system that I can incorporate these in, um, or other things like, you know, infrastructure as code, supporting technology, you know, technologies that I'm using already in DevOps, and then being able to tie in the other tools. So for doing infrastructure as code, I, I wanna be able to then tie in an infrastructure as code um, security tool into there to be able to check my policies or compliance and so on. So when I think about cybersecurity, I think about the cybersecurity tools that I can couple into what I'm already doing with other tools and how I can support them um, holistically around the type of solution that I'm creating. And then I think about everything as building blocks so that I can incorporate. So if I have IAM, if I have infrastructure, if I have uh, compliance assessments that I need to run against the infrastructure I create, then if I wanna create integrations, I do all that in the same process so that I have a very iterative and continuous way to support the solution I create. And that's something that we don't typically see in cybersecurity products themselves. They're very much point solutions for one very particular sliver of what they're trying to do. But that doesn't work for what we're trying to achieve in DevSecOps because we have all these different technologies, cyber and DevOps included, and then we have to tie them into a bunch of different external systems. And then we have to support them over time too, because it's not like, oh, let's, we have this project, we wanna build towards the end of this product, project, like you were kind of mentioning earlier around like ZTNA or other things. It's like, okay, that's great, but we need to be thinking about what's next because by the time you finish any of these large projects, what you've done may be, close to or already obsolete and you have to start thinking about the next thing you're going to incorporate in so yeah so I, I it, for me it's like you you have to always be thinking about what's next and so 
when it comes back to your questioning around cybersecurity technology, that's really what I have been trying to achieve with, with refactors to do that or now Sophos Factory, which is to be able to support the long-term capabilities. It's not just about the near-term use cases that companies are trying to support to build solutions, but it's also looking at how can I incorporate anything that's net new? And that's really kind of a, a foreign concept in the cybersecurity world that we really have to get past and really be thinking about this uh, longer term. To your point also about, you know, keeping ourselves ahead of, of nation states or uh, bad actors or adversaries, we have to be thinking about this type of concept and how we can be very agile and how we're leveraging technology um, to be able to be as many steps ahead as we can of, of, of our adversaries. Yeah, I can tell you that by the the time uh, this is done implementing zero trust according to according to their schedule, which of course they're going to miss the schedule. But even if they actually meet the the schedules they released, uh, I can tell you zero trust will already be obsolete by the time they, they finish doing it. So that's uh, that's a very scary thing, and and kind of the velocity of IT is increasing. And I think people start to realize, right? Uh, you used to have more time to figure things out, and now the time is getting compressed and compressed and compressed, right? And so when, when you look at some of the enablers, right, you, you talked about, of course, uh, some of the great work you, you built. But what, what would be the, the top, you know, three cyber products that you've seen, whether it's commercial or open source, I don't care, that, that you see all accelerating the journey of, of teams uh, to, to DevSecOps? Is there, is there like a top three that you got? There is. So I, when it comes to... Um, Secrets management. I really like uh, HashiCorp Vault. I think it's a great product. I think it's also something that cybersecurity and DevOps teams can use and support. Um, when it comes to other tools, you know, obviously in the HashiCorp bucket too, like Terraform for uh, infrastructure as code. And when you compare that to like the cloud native templates, it's always nice to have one technology that you can support cloud across. Agnostic, yeah. Uh, yeah, cloud agnostic, exactly. And then the third would be. Um, Kubernetes. I, I, I like Kubernetes. We built, I built refactor, we built refactor on, on Kubernetes. Um, but it's also to your point, like a very complicated technology. And so I also view it as not, not for everything, but I, I do believe that depending on the use case, the use case and what you're trying to accomplish with it, it's a, a really solid technology to be able to uh, deploy your applications again, cloud, cloud agnostic and, and be able to also support kind of more of the, the hybrid approach. And we, we ended up picking Kubernetes because we had to support tools to be able to run inside of the uh, technology as opposed to going like pure play cloud native, you know, using like Lambda functions or other type of approach um, to do that. And so we looked at, you know, how do we support a lot of the tools? Because as we mentioned earlier, a lot of the technologies out there are CLI driven too. So you have to be thinking about how, how you can support that those type of technologies, both on the cyber side and the in the DevOps side, um, and that's why I picked it. But those are kind of my top three. I I, I mean, I have I like a lot of tools. There's so, so many, so. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was exactly. looking just um, you know infrastructure as code security tools, right? And of course, you have a lot of the legacy guys that are doing scanning of code, trying to do some IC scanning. Uh, usually not very good, right? And then you have the more cloud native guys, right? Uh, doing a lot of stuff. You have the you know, the smaller guys and the bigger guys, you know, Acurix, you have uh, Cystix, Nick, you know, all these guys. There's a lot of players, right? And it's kind of the problem, right? You look at the, the CNCF landscape map uh, and you end up uh, having uh, a gazillion uh, products and companies, which 
effectively compounds your cyber problems, right? Because you're bringing more dependencies, uh, more issues, right? There's this big push of software bit of material, right? With uh, the new uh, president cyber executive order and many people are jumping to bring SBOM uh, uh, scanning and also uh, management of, of SBOM and, and understanding the risk of, of the software you're using and dependencies and uh, kind of getting a better understanding of, of the overall risk of, of what you're doing. And what, what do you think, you know, when you see this executive order, right? And I, I help write it, so uh, you can blame me later. But, um, you know, often what I find is we, we have what I would argue is a good idea or logical uh, common sense decision that we're making, creating some type of policy or some type of, um, uh, you know, publication or, or whatever, right? Something official. Uh, and often it turns, you know, pretty badly because of either misunderstanding, misinterpretation, you know, uh, uh, people turning it into something that's not good, right? I've seen it, for example, with the Contus ATO memo that I drafted before leaving, where I wanted to try to make the Contus ATO DOD-wide official recognized, you know, well understood this uh, DOD CIO thing. And then DOD CIO added a paragraph before signing saying, well, all Contus ATOs have to be approved by me, uh, before I, I sign off and before you can have a Contus ATO, uh, despite the fact that, by the way, they've never done uh, they've never done a Contus ATO before, and so so how would it know if it's good or bad? But you know that's a, that's a whole different problem, and you can see like you know someone coming up with a normal decent idea turn into something pretty bad. What what are your thoughts on the the you know I had a discussion this morning with a, a VC right that was asking me, well. The government is asking to do this SBOM scanning. Uh, you know, they they were they wanted to invest in one of the the companies doing SBOM scanning, right? And they were asking my opinion. And you know, th those guys were like, "Well, someone could just go get an open source scanning tool, and and even if it's not very good, it's fine because it's it's just checking the box, and and that's good enough." And but it kind of defeat the point as to why we did it, right? We wanted to have the right. S bomb with the right details and the right vision, right? But you can already see people trying to find sneaky ways to get around it. Is that kind of the world? Is I, we just have to get used to the way the way the world behaves? I, I yeah, I, I hope not. I really want to push push change and in, in innovation around this. I think that you're correct. Like the in order to achieve the the C status and in like CATO, we have to be thinking about truly being able to provide continuous and you can't do continuous if it's just a checkbox every you know six months or a year or, or whatever timeline you're, you're kind of checking back in and getting uh, a reassessment on on your technology it's got to be something every time you're you know pushing out uh code that everything gets checked which also comes into play with the uh sbom I, I i like to look at the sbom as some, it should be a solution bill of materials i think we're at a point where you know, SBOMs were really kind of looking at the different packages and, and uh, libraries that were included in your code from a, you know, an open source or ones that you created yourself. Um, but now we're kind of looking at, you know, what else can we include in to be able to include, say, the CI CD pipeline, the tools that you're actually using to release your software. Um, so everything that goes and encapsulates with it. And so I think we're kind of at a place now where we're just thinking, you know, we're seeing the executive order come out and talking about SBOMs, but it's still very kind of rudimentary in what our expectation of it is. And we should be thinking again, as I mentioned earlier, like 
what is that supposed to look like down the road? And how do we, again, future-proof ourselves from it becoming obsolete by, to your point, just, hey, we checked the box. We have an SBOM now. Oh, okay. But, you know, do we just need more data about what we're releasing, um, you know, about our software? We, do we need to think about more about what is everything that's supporting the release of our software? And now also thinking about it, not just being about app dev, but about everything that we're doing in IT or ITS code. So I, 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 I think it's a step in the right direction, but I just don't think it's far enough. I think we continue to need to improve how we approach this. And so that C should consist of everything that you're trying to get in your ATO, and it should include everything holistically and be able to do that in a very, uh, a, a very short-term cadence every time you want to be able to have it rechecked. And I think that's where we need to get, but everything is lagging so far behind in the, in the government. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time for us to get there. So if we can have some framework around it, I think we're going to be able to, we can be in a better space to be able to support it. But if we don't have a really solid framework on what that means, um, it's going to be very tough for us to be able to develop a, a, around that. And I even see things like, um, you know, for FedRAMP, like OSCAL and other technologies where there are strides made to, you know, hey, we just don't want another report that can be automatically custom generated. How do we tie this in to the tools and technologies we're using? Because that's where we're going to get the most value. And then can we future proof that? So if one tool is what we're using today, but another one is the de facto tool tomorrow that everybody's using, can we just swap it out? And I think we have to start thinking about that type of uh, interoperability and functionality to, again, future-proof ourselves in these type of initiatives. Yeah, and you, you mentioned OSCAL. You know, I had, a, <clears throat> I had a great demo on Monday of a product called uh, Reg, Reg Scale, Reg, like R-E-G Scale. And I had never heard of it before. And, and uh, a couple of people that I trust told me, hey, this is pretty good. And I can tell you <clears throat> their vision of what they call uh, reg reg ops, uh, kind of you know DevOps, but for regulations, um, is kind of game changing and integrates with uh, OSCAL and and bring kind of a, a turnkey um, kind of continuous continuous uh, regulation framework uh, enforcement slash you know um, mapping and it's just pretty cool. So you you should check it out. But um, the other point you you kind of brought up. You know, is kind of the uh, lack of maturity, right? Of of the S bomb, the, the same VC that was asking me questions about that that scanning um, S bomb product was also wondering about what happens. You know, once all these companies uh, have a bunch of findings and uh, struggle, right, to uh, to address them and, and all this tech debt, right? And uh, you know, that that reminded me of of. Uh, of what's going on with Atlassian, right? Where I've been pretty vocal about it because obviously, you know, the DoD is a big consumer of Atlassian. As, as a public company, I, I would expect companies to do much better. I, I remember two years ago fighting with the leadership there um, when they were trying to justify why they had dependency that were seven to 12 years old with uh, 1,400 CVEs on Jira and Atlassian and uh, Confluence alone. Uh, I've never seen a product with 1,400 CVEs in my whole life. Uh, let alone something where you end up putting quite a lot of information. And you've seen over the, the years quite a lot of zero days and, and critical uh, CVEs released on, on Confluence and Atlassian, uh, Jira, right? And so that kind of makes me upset, right? You, 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 you make, you're charging quite a bit of money. At the same time, you're telling people that you're going you're gonna to shut off the on-premise deployments 
uh, because you're going to move to a SaaS model. And then they had the they had an issue where they deleted hundreds of accounts of some of their customers, and it took them uh, three weeks to uh, restore the data lost. You imagine you're you're hosting your stuff on the SaaS because you were mandated to move from on-prem to a SaaS, and those those same guys uh, end up deleting your entire uh, suite of Atlassian data, and 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 you're left with no tool for three weeks when they're trying to restore the data uh, magically. Uh, you know, this is just a shit show, right? I mean, you, you, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't think this is something that could happen in 2022. But my point of all this is, you know, you, you see the move of, of Atlassian pushing back to the SaaS model, right? My take was, hey, you know, so most people were like, well, it's probably because it's more money, right? Which is not false, but it's not really true because the on-premise stuff was actually more expensive. Uh, and it's also a recurring uh, payment. So it's not like you're paying one time. It's a, it's a monthly payment just like the SaaS. So they, it's not really a money thing. My take was by by moving from on-premise to SaaS, then people have no access to the bits of the software and don't, don't know how bad the CVs are. So they don't have to go through explaining why they have 1,400 CVs on the product. So you think, you know, with that adoption of SBOM, all these companies are putting their hands in the sand, right? Trying to uh, hope that... Uh, uh, you know, no one is going to know about all their dependencies and CVEs. What is going to change in the market now that these companies are going to try to do business with the government and they're going to have to provide those S-bombs? Yeah, so I, that's, a, that's a great question. I think there has to be more transparency around that. Even if you're shifting from supporting on-prem to SaaS, it doesn't mean that you didn't all of a sudden magically you don't have it. to. You don't yeah. just trust me? Come on. I have <laughs> a beautiful pass. It's right here. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is. Um, but how do you verify? Like, I mean, you can verify it, yeah. right? That's the beauty of no, SAS. You no, trust, yeah, trust it, but you can verify, yeah. right? It, it, exactly. And, and then you have to bring in some sort of uh, uh, something continuous and then be able to report that to your user base so they know what's actually going on behind the scene. So. If you're still going to do business with the government, you're going to have to disclose and go through the process anyway. So it's kind of a, I, I think it's more, so and I'm a, I can't, yeah, I can't speak for Alassian, but I just know from a, from an on-premise in a, um, you know, SaaS based uh, type offering is that support is always kind of the, one of the biggest issues of how do we support this um, um, product? You're right though. Like if you have the product, um, and you're able to, you know, scan or do things with the product yourself, then um, you're able to see things that you may not be able to see with SaaS. Um, but I'll also say from from our um, Sivir that, you know, we, we went through um, with Platform One and Spacecamp, um, a good portion of it was to do the on-premise because of the fact that trying to support a SaaS-based offering for customers isn't always the best option. And so being able to have both options for different types of customers, I think still yeah, imperative, even in 2022. It's yeah, it's a, oh, yeah, it is, it is. And so I, I don't think, you know, trying to go to pure plas uh, uh, SaaS uh, play is is the best option. Um, I will say, though, that, you know, it, it, it is different, you know, when you're a, a public company and you have a pressure on you for things, too. So there's, you know, there's, you know, again, I'm not, I can't speak for lasting, but there's always things yeah. behind the scene you know, that you're seeing go on that could be pushed from other reasons, but kind of back to your question around like S bombs and other things. I think if, if you're going that direction, you need to be as transparent as possible. And so 
there's going to be expectations that you have to provide things to users. And so I, I don't think you're ever going to get away from that as long as customers are pushing for that type of transparency. And I think that's what we have to do as consumers to do that. I also say, though, is taking an agnostic approach so that you can say, okay, well, maybe maybe Alassian's the thing I want to use today, but maybe I want to use, you know, GitHub or GitLab or something else. So thinking about things, again, more agnostic and holistically, where I can say, let me, let me have the option to pick and choose so I'm not um, locked in. And it's always difficult because at some point you're going to be locked in when you pick particular vendors. But if you can it's figure out ways... To move too, right? I mean, it's not like you can is. move off uh, Jira and Confluence overnight, right? Exactly. And how much do you have invested in it too, right? Because even if you move to something else, is it as good as the product that you have? Because there's, there's other things to think about too, like user, how, how long users have been in the product trying to move to something different. So it's always the context switching that's always um, difficult for users, especially if they have a ton of experience in particular products. But that's just kind of the byproduct of, you know, uh, widely adopted products in our industry, right? But what do, do you think people that used to get away with those kind of CVs, right, inside of products, once they have to give that S-bomb, right, once once a company like Atlassian or whatever, right, it doesn't matter, but whatever company has to give that S-bomb to the government and, and if they show up with the 1,400 CVs or whatever, right, I don't think you can yeah. get away with that, right? I hope I hope no. people will be like, wait a minute, this is, what what's your plan to fix it, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I, you should be doing your own, um, due diligence on your own cybersecurity posture internally and coming out and, and you shouldn't hide things either, but th there are a lot of good tools and technologies out there that could help you cut down on your CVEs. But at the end of the day, you know, to your point earlier, everything is increasing exponentially from a velocity standpoint. So we shouldn't expect that if you release an SVOM, there's going to be zero CVEs or anything right. else that accompanies it, but you should be able to talk to it and say, hey, we may have, we have these. a plan. Here's our path. Yeah, here's our plan. Here's our path to fix these. And this is our policy and procedures on how we're able to react to the S bombs that we release. And I think that's going to be super, super important for any company that's pushing out S bombs. But it's going to be, you know, a process and it's going to be painful. Like having to be transparent and be accountable is never an easy thing but it's a necessity especially with all of the past attacks that we've had in the supply chain or software supply chain we we have to be very vigilant when it comes to this and be very transparent well you know I, in the last two years uh in in my government role i i forced uh, pretty much uh because that's what it is but uh i had to force about uh you know 7500 cvs to be patched upstream and so i had to work with a lot of companies to do that and funny enough, in the Atlassian example, um, their initial policy was stating that uh, because they mitigated uh, somehow the CVE, they, they claim, oh, it's not in the code path, which, of course, no one can prove if that's true or not uh, or whatever. Right. And so you, you have you have these uh, these CVEs being mitigated. And so their, their policy was saying that, well, if it's mitigated, I don't have to fix it or update the update the dependency, which I think is is nonsense. Right. Because. You're compounding the tech debt, and, and then you know how do you know if if all these CVs combined, the malicious actor is not going to find a way to uh, to use them against each other to to escalate privileges or do different things, which you know most most humans don't have a brain capable of of trying to compound 1,400 CVs risk. I mean, this is just, no one can tell you. Yeah, I know, I know, we're fi we're fine. Uh, in fact, they're not right. 
And so I'm the one who kind of forced them to say, well, even for mitigated CVEs, you have six months, which I think is a uh, way too long, but at least better than seven to 12 years, right? Um, and I, you know, I, I told them you, you have six months to patch those, uh, or we're gonna have to DATO the product. And I can tell you that that's the only thing that worked, you know? Yeah, and, and I think we have to also be thinking about how we can overcome any sort of vulnerabilities that are found on looking again, this goes back to like how we build more of these modern DevSecOps solutions and where everything becomes building blocks because it's going to, it's easier if you have chunks of things that you're trying to, um, trying to resolve. And a lot of the CVs that are out there aren't necessarily your own software, right? They're third party. They could be OS, they could be cloud, they could be included libraries. And so you have to think about how you're able to accomplish these and, the different building blocks of what you're creating. And that's where this whole shift to IT as code is super important because it's very difficult to do if it's all hardware based. I don't have the tools in place. How do I, how do I fix, you know, systems that have been in place for, you know, to your point, like seven to 12 years that maybe I haven't done anything to. So what am I going to do to, to, to bring them up to speed? Or if I do, it's going to break everything. Right. And so you, you have to think about, you know, this comes back to our, our, conversation about continuous too, you have to start thinking about how to resolve this continuously and also kind of chipping away at it as well. I mean, if, if it's glaring and, you know, you have a thousand plus CDs and yeah, you got to try to figure out how to chip away faster, but you have to also think about the systems and the technologies you're going to put in place to make sure as new ones come out, because this isn't like we were talking about earlier, a checkbox. This is a continuous thing you absolutely have to be thinking about and be able to have an answer for where you can continuously solve for these and make sure that you're resolving these type of, of issues um, in an ongoing type or continuous type manner. Yeah, you know, I have a funny other example where uh, I was with uh, CloudBase, right? And CloudBase also with Jenkins being 11 years old, of course, uh, and Java, you know, that, that always has a bunch of CVs, right? So um, they had a, a bunch of findings and, you know, it, it was pretty bad and, and not as bad as Atlassian, but it was pretty bad. And so, um, you know, to the point where we you know, we almost had to DATO it. And so I had a pretty engaged conversation, we'll say, with CloudBees. And they, they did it, you know, to their credit, they they went after the tech debt and started updating uh, the, the bits. But of course, you have a bunch of plugins too. So Jenkins is very tough, right? You have all these plugins made by third parties. So you have to go and reach out to all these people. But, you know, so it's 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 a problem, right? I get it. And and funny enough, they were tackling the tech debt and, and you know, solving a lot of the CVs. And I was getting excited and, uh, we're getting to be ready to say, yeah, you know, we, you're in good shape, you know, again. And then decided to release new features. And, and then the, the new features had dependencies, new dependencies with a bunch of CVEs. And 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 I had to reach out to the to the leadership, you know, to complain again. And and they're like, yeah, you know, we never thought about uh, making sure that uh, as part of the, the, the process of, of picking new dependency that we scan it to make sure, you know, we're not bringing new new uh problems right i'm like really i have to be the one telling you this like really this is not like a common understanding that uh you know it's, it's probably good that you you take some time to pick the right dependencies be before bringing it into your product so many developers still today right believe that because they use open source bits or even paid uh libraries or things they're not liable or responsible for those but everything you ship in your product is part of your product you picked it right you're responsible at the end of the day for whatever the component set of, of issues uh, would be. So that was always interesting to me that 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 lack of you know 
continuous, back to your point on continuous understanding of risk and making sure we're not uh, adding more risk when we're trying to solve already all these uh, existing uh, CVEs. Yeah, I to- totally agree. I-, I do think, though, sometimes there is the the uh, the cumulative effect of I add an open source package in that works for me, but then there's all these dependencies that I have to trace down into what I'm adding in. And sometimes you're not aware of that. And so again, that comes back to like the tools and technologies that you're using that can help you there. And sometimes you need to use multiple tools because you can't, um, you know, one, one tool may not be just satisfy the exact requirements you need. And so you need to be thinking about kind of a multi-tool strategy, depending upon what you're trying to scan out there too. And there's nothing wrong with that. So that also you can kind of, uh, compare the different results as well um, across different products, so you know you know exactly what you're getting. Because a lot of products out there are you know fairly old and haven't really been yeah. innovating all that much, so they're they're they 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 they're most likely missing things that some net new startup decided to take a different approach to it. So it's always good to look at the you know the the incumbent vendors and the new ones to see you know maybe there's net new technology out there that they're working on or other things like you said, like reg ops or other, you know, SEA tools or other, other things that, you know, may actually do a better job. The whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm actually surprised that, that there is very little uh, in terms of <clears throat> competitors to Atlassian, you know, I mean, GitLab has a decent set of collaboration tools, you know, get, get, you know, get GitHub and Microsoft a little bit, but I, I mean, it's not great. Um, but I, you know, you would think there would be, <clears throat> hundreds, right? I mean, it's a pretty broad collaboration market, and yet not not much go- is going on on the on the Atlassian competitor side. So, if anyone on the on the show today wants to share, maybe on the on the comment section, some of the names, I, I'm trying to find options uh, to have diversity of options, and and even smaller new startups will be great. So, I wanted to um, to send that message for everybody. Now, we you know we we talked about the fact that. Uh, you know, cyber guys now have to get used to code and, you know, maybe a little bit less of CLI and more of uh, Git, right? Does that make them developers? I mean, are they, <laughs> if you can write a bunch of YAML and, and whatever, right? Uh, edit a, a Docker file and, and change a few versions here and there, or I don't know, you know, pick a different dependency or whatnot. Uh, how do you, you know, do you think all this kind of... Uh, uh, dependency management, updating of bits, updating of packages, all this stif- stuff is getting more and more automated with infrastructure as code and, and more scalable across, you know, dozens of uh, Linux servers and VMs and containers and things. Is that a, a job that's going to be replaced by uh, by AI or, or just automation? And, and, and those guys, what's the future for those people? Are they, do they have to reinvent themselves to become... Uh, get up security people become a kind of a specific type of developers or what do you think uh, is the future for those people so I, I think as i mentioned earlier i think you know we have to look at kind of redefining the definition of developer so we can look at you know if, if a cybersecurity prof- uh, practitioner or engineer um, is building scripts or working in other tools like ansible can those the, the automation content they've created be packaged up and uh, put into more of the, the DevSecOps pipelining process? And I, I think the answer to that question is yes. But then we have to kind of broaden our, our definition of developers. And this goes back to the whole IT as code type of thought process because a lot of the, so, you know, a lot of the technologies and solutions that you're trying to 
uh, create aren't necessarily for just pure play app dev anymore. It, it's now thinking about other, you know, pieces and parts of technology, you know, things that you wouldn't have thought before around like, hey, can I um, uh, deploy a, a, a firewall virtually in a configuration against it and drop that data or deploy some infrastructure behind it? And so now you start thinking about what cybersecurity teams are supporting currently. So there may be a, you know, firewall or network team that needs to support that. And then moving to more of the cloud native firewalls supported too. But if you take the same approach by saying, I create, I can create these scripts, I can develop in these tools, and to your point, if it's YAML or, or whatever, and then can I package those up and turn them into repeatable bits of uh, pipelines that now other, my, I can work with my DevOps counterparts. I think the answer to that question is yes, but we have to move the needle so that we can get them involved inside of the process and not, and, and also not thinking that just because I use a CLI or I build scripts that I'm not actually a developer. And so that's where we have to kind of shift this whole thought process on. Um, and, and, and even with that shift, not every cybersecurity practitioner, or, you know, ops person will become, uh, you know, hardcore software engineers. But I think if we can start pushing the upskilling narrative by saying, hey, you if you learn these tools, if you can learn this technology, if you can work with your your DevOps and developer counterparts to be able to at least start providing uh, uh, cybersecurity tools and cybersecurity use cases and fun in, in a format that they can use, I think we're going to be able to shift this narrative to be able to include them as actually as developers. I don't think that's the same as like a citizen developer, we're like, well, anybody in your organization can develop because I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that's true at all. But no, it's um, a job. Developing yeah. is a job. <laughs> exactly. So, but I think we yeah. can get we we can shift um, the left, but I think it's going to take culture shift inside of organizations to have these different teams working together. I also believe it's going to require technologies that can meet both of the teams where they're at. Um, so we're not just expecting cybersecurity practitioners to now become DevOps engineers or vice versa, DevOps engineers now have to include cybersecurity. I think we have to figure out a way to be somewhere in between so that it can support them both. And I think that's the way um, we're going to solve this. And then the last point is the ability to support existing systems because both cybersecurity and uh, developers or DevOps have different technology they need to support. And so how do you cohesively intertwine those together so they can both actually be a part of the narrative because you see a lot of cybersecurity initiatives where their their stuff is being done in a silo aside from the developers and it's like oh well how do i know what each team is doing um and it's not just about hey let me show you in a dashboard what we're doing it's like i actually need you to take responsibility and have a seat at the table to actually create and build things that we can use on either side of that uh, of that spectrum yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because obviously most people uh, refuse to admit <clears throat> when a, an industry is going to be completely wiped out through automation or AI, right? Uh, Elon Musk made uh, many statements saying that, uh, you know, 70% of the jobs that we know will be automated uh, within 10 years with AI. Obviously, most people like to believe it's not going to happen and that's okay. But the fact is, uh, maybe we should be uh, paying attention to this with the adoption of, of GitOps and, and, and look, there's going to be a lot of tech debt and it's going to take years for this to uh, become the norm and, and replace the uh, uh, existing uh, legacy way of doing things. But the fact is, if I have to pick for my kids, uh, you know, that are three years old now, right? 
uh, what to do. And uh, of course, I'm not going to give them a choice because we give them a choice. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course, they're going to be able to pick. But obviously, they're going to pick what I tell them to pick. So uh, if you had to tell them, you know, where to focus, right, uh, what would that be? I mean, obviously, for an ops guy today, do you think at least, the very least, at minimum, understanding Cubase and, and really becoming a, kind of a, a Cubase SRE slash guru, you know, would be... Uh, a great way to make sure you have another 20, uh, maybe 15, 15 years uh, in front of you as an ups guy? I think so. But I, I, the, the engineers or the ops folks that I've seen become successful um, and I have some on my team are the ones that have shifted from being like a sysadmin type of, uh, persona to being more of the, the DevOps. Um, but I, I think we have to be thinking about how you can move towards leveraging tools and then other technologies. I think it's a leap for somebody that's, you know, a sysadmin on, you know, servers and desktops and networking equipment to make the, the leap from that purely to like Kubernetes or anything cloud native. I think there has to be a crawl, walk, run approach. Um, and I think you have to kind of start looking at different tools and technologies. I also like to say that you have to learn computer science fundamentals. You don't need to go through and get a computer science degree. But you need to at least learn the baseline of what you're getting into so you can learn the concepts of even like different tools. Because there's tools like I mentioned earlier, Ansible, that are great for starting to get an automating that you can start moving towards understanding these computer science fundamentals, leveraging a tool like that. But you have to start living within the tools, start figuring out how you can apply that, do everything in very small, bite-sized chunks so you can start learning and iterating. It's like developing an app, right? Like you're not going to go and just code the entire app and then come back and go, okay, now I'm going to run it and test it and see if it works, right? You're going to start yeah. iterating incrementally on it. And you should have to be thinking about the same way as you're starting to learn new technologies and incorporating what you're doing. I do think though that not every ops person can become a DevOps engineer or a DevSecOps engineer. So we have to be thinking about, you know, to your point about AI, like how is AI and automation going to help supplement it? But if we all look back all the like ATMs and, and uh, tellers, like it didn't remove the teller from the bank, right? Like as, as it was <laughs> said, it was going to happen. Um, but it did kind of rework and augment how those, that type of person operates within a bank. And so we have to be thinking about it. And it's probably going to be much, you know, much uh, bigger uh, uh, adoption of AI with automation. So I think there's a, a, uh, there's go definitely going to be a world where software is creating software, right? But we also have to be thinking about uh, how we're able to augment humans into that equation. And we're not, it's, it's not just going to be like, oh, well, one day everything is just going to be driven by, um, you know, AI. It's going to be a kind of a delicate balance. I don't believe it's just going to be, you know, a, a Skynet type situation, you know, 10, 20 years yeah. from now. But I, I do believe that we're going to see a massive amount of uptick in how AI is applied to automation. And there's good reason for it and how it's going to be able to really help us uh, when it comes to technology or really the yeah, velocity maybe we need, of how maybe we're we need a learning, Maybe we need a learning camp, you know, to send some ops guys to go through a, a, a four, four month journey of, uh, of uh, step-by-step learning to get all the way to, uh, to Cubase. You know, I don't know how we're going to, we're going to bring all these people to, uh, 
to the yeah. to the modern world, you know. But um, yeah, and I, I and it's also like the supporting things around Kubernetes too, right? Like you need to learn the technologies around the cloud and what are the tools that you're using and how how do all these things work together? Because there's a lot of pieces and parts around Kubernetes that is very useful to learn um, when you're making that journey to get to that point. And as I mentioned earlier too, Kubernetes may be here today, but how long has Kubernetes been around? It's been around for a while, right? So what's the next technology? And so we need to be able to train them up to be able to then be quick to have the aptitude yeah. to pick learn up whatever learn, the next right? thing is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. and that's why you know self-learning is is essential. And you know, I'm 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 actually working on a on a curriculum. Uh, you know, I'm I'm partnering with uh, a couple of uh, uh, foundations that you all know, uh, open source foundations, right? And and so I'm I'm creating a, an executive curriculum for DevSecOps because I I, I couldn't find anything that uh, that was good enough, right, for execs to understand why. DevSecOps matters. What you know? What all the the key concepts of uh, containers, Kubernetes, service mesh, continuous monitoring? Why why does it mean you know for an exec talking about you know oh oh five oh six plus you know uh, all the way to the the GS fourteen fifteen SES and of course the the commercial equivalent right? It's not just for DoD, but um, kind of you know the the middle frozen layer plus the top right on why all these things matter. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. I think the, the learning and the self-learning and enabling people to learn, and that's what schools don't do very well, uh, in my opinion. <clears throat> you know, uh, I feel that uh, not only the, the curriculums are so far behind, when I tried to help universities to do a DevSecOps curriculum, they were complaining that I wanted to update the, cur the curriculum every year. They wanted to, to freeze it every five years, right? <clears throat> I said, you can't do five years, that's for sure. Maybe three <laughs> if you're crazy, but... So you're not five, and, and so that's why I ended up not working with most of the big universities because I, you know, I didn't agree with the velocity of of updating the the curriculum. Uh, so I, you know, I think self learning is going to be the key, right? I think that's going to be how people are going to have to evolve and learn, and and so we need to educate and train people how to learn by themselves, ideally, you know, as fast as possible. So um, I guess there was a great question. I'm going to bring it up on the screen here by uh, Zach on. What about integrating the developers into a purple team approach? Where, uh, of course, if you aim, uh, if your aim is to address an AI ML approach, they really could help innovate those solutions. So, you know, shifting those guys to be part of the the purple team to also help in kind of pen testing and building more tests and and whatever you know things around the uh, uh, proactive and reactive cyber defense is that a a good shift for some of these guys too? I think so. I, I think it, like we look at, you know, the ability to automate some of the things, as you mentioned, like pen testing or uh, tax simulation. Um, we have to think about like shifting the narrative on where we're incorporating these into the process. But this is also where it comes down to how you're building your solutions and how you're incorporating um, your developers in there. So I've had some interesting conversations with um, different folks um, around this and like um, MITRE around the different ways to incorporate um, a, even like attack simulation software or other things in there. But the, the key though, is that you kind of have to take a step back and know holistically and look at the life cycle of what you're creating and then be able to incorporate that into the process. Cause I absolutely feel like there's a place there or feel like there absolutely is a place for this. And I do agree with like the ability to apply 
um, an AI ML approach so that you can have, you know, your stuff be uh, tested um, and, and build larger data sets to, to, to get better data from the testing of those solutions. But I think we have to, like I mentioned earlier, crawl, walk, run. I feel like this is like the run stage once you've dialed in everything when it comes to um, DevSecOps to be able to incorporate this into the mix. But if you build everything in a much more modular approach, it makes stuff like this approach easier to incorporate into what you've already created. Yeah, no, spot on. <clears throat> All right, we're going to we're gonna shift a little bit topic, but still very much uh, uh, part of what you went through. Uh, you, you obviously sold your company to a larger group, uh, Sophos, right? Um, that, you know, that was a pretty exciting journey, I'm sure. Uh, picking the buyer, you know, uh, trying to see if it's going to be a good fit. Uh, I, I sold, you know, 12 companies, but I also sold a, sold 187 products over uh, 20 years. So I, I know how to uh, not get attached too much to my babies, at least the software babies, right? Uh, not my real babies, but how how do you uh, do you do that? And how, what, what lessons did you learn? And, and uh, do you have any regrets? So from a kind of a timing perspective, what I've learned is... And, I've, and as, I, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I've had multiple companies. So I've seen where, you know, market timing is super critical. But I also learned that when you're selling your company, there's really only two good times to sell it. It's before you've, re, you've raised the VC money so that you can maximize um, the, the value for not just the founders, but all the employees of the company. Or you're going to raise a few rounds and then sell the company. Now, obviously, there, there's outliers there from that standpoint. But I think from my perspective, it was all a matter of kind of timing. And also, what the acquiring company is looking for from a technology standpoint is super critical. Um, so what you're building um, needs to be able to map to whatever the narrative of what they're trying to, you know, not just tell their customers, but also looking to the future on what they're trying to do. So from, from where we sat when we were uh, talking to Sophos was, um, you know, it just became the right time, the right product, and then the right company to to do it with. Um, but it's also uh, there's a little element of luck involved too when you're 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 getting to those type of conversations and where you um, sit at in the process of when they're looking for things to acquire too. So I I would say always be looking for you know, how other companies view what you're doing. Don't be um, uncomfortable with the fact if you're doing something, especially if it's fairly novel in the space, um, to try to adapt your own narrative to, to work within um, what they're looking for. But it, it just comes down to, the, as I said, the right place, the right time. I think from a lesson learned coming into a bigger company, you keeping the company as it's, uh, or sorry, keeping the company the startup refactor as a team was was super critical for us on integrating versus everybody just being dispersed to other teams across the org. Um, and, you know, just making sure that we can adapt to the culture and it makes sense for us um, as a team and how we can integrate. Because at some point you will be assimilated to a certain extent. So you have to be prepared for that. Um, that being said, you know, I, I uh, you know, I was, I was uh, in the Air Force, so I, I know how to assimilate to an extent. Um, but I, I think you just have to be prepared for that as you become a, a, a team within the constraints of a, a larger machine. 
Um, and you will lose some velocity because there's going to be processes and procedures and other things that you have to take into account as you're starting to, you know, work yourself into a bigger machine. But at the same time, there's, you know, uh, the upside of being able to do a lot of the things that you couldn't unless you either raised a huge funding round or um, figured out other paths to do that. I, I say we were in a, a really good position because we ended up getting that phase two SIBR contract. So we were able to use that kind of as the intermediary uh, funding vehicle as we were going through the process, which was awesome. And then I'll say the last point is it's really cool now that you can be grandfathered in with your SIBRs. It wasn't always that way, the small business innovation research contracts. So it's nice having, being able to take that into Sophos and being able to use that as a vehicle for acquisition as we're building out our Fed practice. So I think it's it's super critical that the DOD is jumping on board. But as you also point out in your uh, the DOD Valley of Death, <laughs> like there has to be better systems in place to be able to go from that phase two to phase three. So I think it's a great vehicle if you can use it. But I think there has to be a lot more support. Um, and I've seen like companies going for phase threes. We haven't yet. Um, and, and go in and talk to the unit and the unit has no clue what a phase three contract is. And so they're having to educate them on, you know, hey, these are this is what SIBR is. This is what a phase three is. This is how we can engage with you. And so that really has to change. So I'm totally on board with with what you've thrown out there from the approach standpoint, because we absolutely need um, resources to be able to take responsibility to make sure companies can move through the stages of the SIBR program. Did you did you find that the Air Force helped you uh, uh, find uh, some good programs to 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 push your tech tech stack to, or you had to to find them yourself and, and then reach out and explain what Cyber was, and or did you did you have some introductions made through through AFWorks or whatever? Uh, how did you get in front of some customers? I guess. So we're, we're we're just wrapping up our phase two. I think because of the fact that we were with. Platform One and then moved to Space Camp and then have been working within kind of the more forward thinking that we have a path forward there. But I also say like the SIBR can be used beyond the DOD too. So being able to get into different agencies is super critical. Yeah. Um, I just happen to be lucky because we just started our Fed practice. We hired our VP of Fed. So we're actually going to put time and effort and energy behind that. If it was still left to just the refactor team, it would be a lot more difficult to do that. I will say, though, to your question, um, we've gotten some introductions or kind of working with our, our current um, TPOX um, on how it can work within what they've worked with us on. But uh, we still have yet to be able to get introductions outside of that group. And I think that's super important. Now, since I'm ex-Air Force, and I know a lot of other folks um, in the Air Force. It makes it a little easier for me to do connections where I need to. But it's still a lot more work than it needs to be, especially if you're yeah. trying to figure out where this technology can be used by different programs. There should be a, a path forward to do that as opposed to, as we mentioned earlier, hey, check the boxes because you just finished your phase two. Okay, well, what's the plan <laughs> to be able to go to phase three? And there should be a continuous approach to the contracting piece too on how you can continuously get in front of you know, different uh, programs or record or other units and not just in the DOD, but across the broader uh, federal government. So did you, you your SIBR effectively enabled you not to do a round of funding <clears throat> by having that, that money, I guess? It did. It well, at least gave us a, a path. We also did uh, revenue-based financing, so we were able to use that. 
Plus the revenues right. were generating. So we ended up not having to raise around, which was really awesome when it comes to an exit. Yeah. I mean, we saving around of funding is, is yeah. important. <laughs> it's not, yeah. It's <laughs> Especially when you're building. Yeah, exactly. When you're building a, um, a product that is focused on enterprise and government, it's very difficult. And you're building a platform versus a point solution. It's, it's almost impossible to pull that out with, you know, your traditional round of raising VC funding. So um, yeah. we just happen to get lucky. <laughs> yeah. So you didn't mention any regrets. What, you can't have no regrets. There must be one somewhere. The, the only... It doesn't have to be who, who bought you. It could, could be... Yeah, uh, no, no. I, I don't have regrets around that. But I, yeah, I think sometimes when you sell your company earlier, you always kind of ponder, like, if I did if raise that have, funding... That shape, did, yeah. yeah, and if I did take it. Because what I am seeing is the VCs that I talk to when they when I talk to them had no clue about the DevSecOps market. And so yeah. now I see manifestos oh, and theses <laughs> oh, around yeah, they all come it. To and me. I'm like, yeah. they all come to me. So yeah. I'm just like, oh, okay, two years too early. So I do think about that. But I think because how, how long was it between you the, the when you founded the company and you sold it? How how much time? About <laughs> five or four years four years. So four not years? yeah so an average startup is about seven ish years towards yeah. acquisition. Um, and then I, I was, I was reading on TechCrunch the other day that, you know, if, before you get a institutional round of funding, 97% of startups fail. So yeah. we were in that, like working to raise that first institutional round, but also looking at, um, you know, what, what do we do at that point in time? But I get to your question about kind of regret. It's, it's not a regret. It's just more, I ponder like, Yeah, what, what could have happened, happened if, if you kept we, it? Exactly, and and would it have gone the funding route? Um, but at the same time, you know, funding changes how you approach things and can kind of chip away your autonomy as a startup too, depending on uh, yeah. the, the VC that it's you not a may, It's not a maybe, it is, yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. a fact. Yeah, there's no maybes yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you never know. Would, I mean, it's... Yeah. yeah. And 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 so you've been now in the company, the the new bigger group for for how long now? About nine, a little over nine months. Nine months. <clears throat> so, what are the the list? You know, so I helped a lot of companies, right, get acquired by a larger group. We always had uh, a good understanding of what would happen, and oh, we're gonna be, you know, separate. We're gonna we're gonna have autonomy, and and then honestly, most of the time. Uh, it doesn't happen, right? And and so often after a year or two years, also maybe it's too early to, to know. But uh, you know, I I've seen so many companies ending ending up being uh, wasted, right? So so big companies buying smaller companies initially to innovate. Sometimes I doubt if it was they were really trying to innovate or just kill the competition, you know, <clears throat> and not innovate. Uh, so buying the the guy that was gonna make some noise and, and just kill it, right? Pretend they were not gonna kill it and then kill it anyways, right? You've seen it with Red Hat and um, uh, what's the 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 operating system uh, that they bought? Uh, I'm blanking on it. Core 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 OS, right? Oh, Core OS, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, uh, they 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 didn't realize that uh, you know they, they would be uh, uh, the 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 Core OS uh, uh, founder, right? Would be creating. Uh, is uh, is other uh, um, OS, you know, and and competing with them now. So it's uh, you never, you know, never underestimate kind of what's going to happen, you know, because uh, uh, people are not stupid, right? So uh, 
Uh, anyways, <laughs> like that's I'm sure that's a big I, lesson learned for Red Eye as well. Yeah, for sure. I also saw it, uh, many many years ago. I don't remember a company called Cabiza that was doing VDI with Citrix, where they bought it and then they basically uh, uh, end of life it <laughs> when yeah. they realized that they didn't want to start cannibalizing their uh, Zen desktop and Zen app products. But anyway, mm. um, I, I think from my perspective, the technology build is pretty unique. So um, we're, we're, you know, obviously priorities change from being a startup to being in a bigger company. But I think, right. you know, from a, a, a vision standpoint, we closely aligned with what uh, Sophos looking at with CTO. Um, and so from my perspective, you know, things have been tweaked and adapted and changed internally. But I also think there's a piece of it of the market also kind of getting to the place. I mean, we were bought relatively early compared to the market, yeah. you know, what we're talking about with VCs in general. So I think you have to think about how the market's starting to catch up and then where this, you know, the technology we built can be incorporated into the overall market. And then also kind of the ecosystem play, the Fed play and so on. So I think it was the right time at the right place uh, where we're at. We're still a, an internal team, which is, you know, our own team internally, which is great um, under yeah. you know, a bigger team. But I think from our, right. from my standpoint, you know, it, you know, obviously time will tell, but so far so good. Yeah. And VOS I was talking about is uh, uh, Rocky Linux, right. With uh, Greg. Oh, uh, Rocket. Yeah. Rocky is kind of killing it right now with, uh, and he's kind oh, of well, also yeah. one of, yeah. One of the guys that keeps creating companies, right? He has, uh, yeah, Singularity. You know, he has uh, CIQ and and Rocky Linux now. So, and that's is that the one that's replacing uh, or like trying to replace CentOS? Um, yeah. Currently, yeah, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, uh, that that could be a whole nother discussion. But yeah, it's pretty yep, interesting yep. seeing the the OS yeah. uh, different flavors of of Linux and trying to gain the market share when others are being end of life like Cent. So. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll see how that shakes out over the coming months and years. So we, we did kind of answer a little bit the, the last question I had for you, but uh, uh, you, you mentioned that effectively uh, the CIBR allowed you not to do uh, a, a funding raise, which you know could drastically impact your your exit numbers because you got to save a lot, lot of uh, equity there, right? By not having to dilute yourself with uh, either a, a round of funding or a convertible note or, or whatnot. So, uh, what what kind of lessons learned do you have for startups, right? Trying that debate, a lot of people debate whether or not to even try to get a cyber. So I think cybers are much more difficult and competitive now than they were. I mean, they were always competitive, but you know, yeah. three, four There's years a lot ago, more track. When yeah. th there is, and I also think different programs too. So. You know, if you look at AppWorks, they, they get a ton of, of submissions every every uh, submission cycle. But um, SpaceWorks is, uh, you know, the new the, the Space Force is um, uh, compar comparable to, to AppWorks. And they're not, you know, they're just starting to get started. So it's all a matter of where you can have the most impact from what your technology can do for whatever branch, you know, or agency, the government that you would apply for it. I do think that there are VCs are coming around to be more inclined to look at Sibbers as something valuable that can supplement any investment they make. I, I talked to a lot of VCs who are like, Sibbers don't count. They, they can do nothing. They don't do anything for your bottom line numbers. And I look at it and go, okay, well, if it makes your money more valuable to the company or we can 
do more and develop, you know, do more on the R and D side to get things net new in with additional dollars. I, I think there's a, a large yeah. amount of value. And, and then the other piece oh, yeah. of it is the, what the value is to the acquiring company too. So with the recent, you know, your near recent changes to how acquiring companies can realize a server, I think there needs to be more education on, on that for acquiring companies. Cause I think a lot of companies are in the dark on, Oh, you have a server. That's cool. Oh, you have this, you know, uh, a DOD customer um, that you're working with to, you know, adapt your technology for dual use. What does that actually mean? And how does that impact my company, you know, the acquiring company? I think that's super important on um, being able to have some more education around how, how that is. And then the last piece is, you know, as we had talked about the support of um, the sippers, because I, I think unless you're engaged with folks that know not just the sipper process, but have the connections to other folks in the DOD or you have connections yourself, sippers are, are, are great tools, but without the support that go, would go along with it, they're very difficult to transition. Um, and so I, I, that, that support piece is going to be super critical for the viability of how this, the, the, the technology that comes out of these sippers is actually adopted um, by the DOD or other agencies that have the server program. And so I think that's going to be super important, not just to a startup's exit or how they can be valuable. Because if you can gain customers from the server, well, then all of a sudden those customers become more valuable, but we also or make the company more valuable. But we also have to think about the, the federal space as being a valuable piece of what a startup is able to accomplish by bringing them as customers in the dual use, as opposed to being opposed to that startup because they have a federal, you know, a federal customer. Like that should not be something that that VC should say, oh, I don't want to do anything about that, especially if it's dual use. So you have to prove commercial traction to even get to the next phase of a sipper, um, you know, uh, or at least show that you're going to have commercial viability, which is super critical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're spot on again. So <clears throat> this was uh, a, a lot of great information for the viewers. I'm sure they, they loved it like I did. Wanted to, to thank you, of course, for, for joining us. Uh, as always, I give uh, before I, I, uh, I tell uh, the, the public here what the next episodes are going to be uh, for next week. I give the, the last meaningful words to you. So I'll, I'll do that now and let you uh, let you share your thoughts and then uh, we'll we'll give them the dates for the next episode. So over to you. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, so I, I, I would just kind of words of advice, especially when it comes to cybersecurity being a part and cybersecurity practitioners uh, coming on board to DevSecOps and getting into IT as code is really look at the ability to learn some some computer science fundamentals shift yourself to start picking up tools that um, are in the DevOps and cybersecurity space, and then think about how you can start contributing to provide the value from your side to your DevOps or Dev counterparts, and uh, really look long term to be very collaborative in your organization when it comes to not just cybersecurity but really trying to achieve DevSecOps longer term. Here we go. Awesome. Well, I wanted to, to thank you, Mike, for taking the time again and joining us today to share uh, your, your thoughts on uh, on security and DevSecOps. wanted to remind everybody to, to subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Nicolas Chelon. You're going to see the, the next video on Zero Trust. It's going to be pretty cool. And then we have uh, a video every week. If people want to tell us what's uh, what topic we'll, we should be uh, 
uh, focusing on for the next video, please uh, comment uh, on LinkedIn to tell us uh, what you think we should be focusing on for the next video after the Zero Trust video for next week. Uh, also, um, uh, the next episode uh, next Tuesday is going to be fun. It's going to be, we talked about Cloud Bees a little bit today. Uh, we're going to have the, the CISO, uh, Prakash of, uh, of uh, Cloud Bees, who came from HSBC. So he came from the banking world uh, before joining uh, Cloud Bees. And uh, Prakash will be on the show uh, next Tuesday at 1 p.m. So we're looking forward to having you guys again. In the meantime, everybody stay safe and healthy and keep the good vibe. So uh, our kids have a fighting chance at uh, winning against China in 20 years. Thanks so much.